Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. Today, we're exploring one legendary Northwestern Ohio folktale over 160 years in the making. It's a story full of drama and intrigue, centering on the oldest of plots. Love sought, love denied, love found in the arms of another. For as long as humans have told stories, we've pondered the workings of love, falling in it, falling from it, and wrestling with the hurt that remains. Some of our most persistent legends turn on the focal point of this universal quest, that of finding another who affirms us, accepts us, and completes our missing pieces. These kinds of narratives, at least the ones with the happy endings, are what we call love stories. They're the stuff of romance novels and romantic comedies. In the end, the hapless protagonist wins over the elusive love interest, and we cheer the happy couple on. We walk away from the story with a taste of what it feels like to fall in love and be in love, leaving our own sense of loneliness just a bit reduced as we dream of finding, or perhaps building, that same kind of happiness for ourselves. The story we're exploring today springs forth from the mid-19th century. The freshly dug Miami Erie Canal once stretched from the Ohio River in Cincinnati to Toledo's Lake Erie's shores. It had just been completed in 1845. Along the route, this man-made earthen waterway plowed through remote fields and forests. It passed by a few dozen villages, large and small, from north to south. For those Ohioans living near it, this modern piece of civil engineering brought with it the promise of increased commerce, travel, and growth. Yet more than that, the canal brought something much less tangible. For you see, with the various mix of new people drawn by the jobs it created, some were sure to find disagreements with one another. For many young people, eager to start their adult lives, the canal brought a steady income. But beyond that, this work allowed an ordinary citizen to take part in the cutting-edge technology that would change the landscape forever. So many had high hopes for what this monumental effort would bring. Building and operating what they believed would become a modern thoroughfare. Most of the stories of those who lived and worked and traveled on the canal are now lost to the ages, but not the tale that I'm about to tell you. This tale has been told and retold for at least a century and a half. I'm not just talking about the oral stories passed from one generation to the next. This legend has been published in local newspapers for decades. It's engraved on a stone plaque at the site of the location itself. It's inspired the writing of a musical performed by local high schools. This story has permeated the cultural heritage of this section of Northwest Ohio. I'm talking about the ghostly legend of the Bloody Bridge near St. Mary's.
In my research on this love triangle, turned lethal, I was surprised to see just how many times the story has been reprinted in local newspapers across Ohio since the late 1800s. The earliest mention I was able to find was from 1894. It was a front-page article of the Cincinnati Inquirer, dated November 10th of that year, entitled, Pretty Many. It's written in that stereotypical 19th-century language, with the flair for the dramatic, told with the flourish, filling the reader's need for a little escape into something extraordinary. So imagine yourself in 1894, sitting down next to the fireplace, a pot of fresh coffee brewing on the stove, as you lean back in your rocking chair to browse the front page headlines. Come, hear this story, as read by countless Ohioans of years past, seeking a sense of wonder at the world around them. There is scarcely a person in northwestern Ohio who has not heard of the Bloody Bridge. Few there are, however, who can recite the legend from which the bridge derived its ghastly name. The bridge is located five miles north of St. Mary's, Ohio, and crosses the Miami and Erie Canal, four miles south of Kossuth, at a point where the general country is level, and in consequence, large earthen and stone abutments became necessary that boats could pass under in safety. In the early 50s, Bill Jones and Jack Billings were employed as drivers of two of the many boats that plied the waters of the canal in those days. Bill handled the mules of the Minnie Warren, named after the captain's daughter, who presided over the culinary department of the boat, while Jack was employed in the same capacity with the Daisy. Both Bill and Jack fell head over heels in love with the pretty young cook, but her affections were all bestowed on the big-hearted Jack Billings. A rivalry sprang up between the two men, at first friendly, but which grew to intense hatred for each other. And each trip, as the two boats passed and exchanged greetings, the rivals became more and more aware of each other's hatred, although they remained on speaking terms. As the mules passed on the towpath, the drivers would each wield an extra crack of their long whips, as though the poor brutes were the cause of the rivalry. Jack would exchange greetings with his pretty sweetheart. Along in the fall of 54, both boats received orders for a cargo of lumber, which was being taken from the large timberlands adjacent to the fatal bridge. It required several days to load the boats, and the young people became pretty well acquainted with the lads and lassies of the neighborhood. The evening previous to their departure, after the cargoes were all in ship shape, Jack and Minnie received an invitation to attend a party to be given by one of the country girls. It was to be the social event of that rural district, and Bill was fairly crazed with anger at not receiving a bid. The hour for the frolic arrived, and the young people started off in high spirits, 
at the thought of an evening of fun and of being in each other's society for the whole evening. After the guests had played all the games their youthful minds could conceive, the great front room, or parlor, was cleared of the crude furniture, and the whole assemblage was soon in the gay whirl of the giddy dance. It was in the wee small hours when the last guests departed, Jack tenderly supporting Minnie on his great strong arm. They were only too sorry that it was all over so soon, and that by daylight the boats would have to start on their trips, and perhaps they would not see each other again for a week or a month. They at last came to the bridge, which they had to cross to reach the boats on the heel path side. They had proceeded about halfway across when both were startled at seeing Bill Jones standing in the shadow of the abutment with an axe in his hands. Ho, ho, my pretty pair. You have played it fine tonight, said Bill. But my turn comes now. Raising the axe to his shoulder and with a well-directed blow, he brought it around with the velocity of a cannonball. The keen edge of the deadly weapon completely severing the head from the body of poor Jack. For a moment, poor Minnie stood as if in a dream, and then with the full realization of the horrible truth dawning upon her, she gave one wild shriek and swooned away, falling to the floor of the bridge. Her lifeless body rolled to the edge, where it balanced for a moment, and then went down to the watery grave below. The whole neighborhood was soon aroused by the one shriek from the grief-stricken girl, but they were too late, and two loving hearts that were denied the happiness of a union on earth were joined together before a higher tribunal. The good neighbors rescued the body of Minnie Warren from the dark waters, and tenderly it was laid beside that of her uncouth but big-hearted lover. Bill Jones disappeared, and no trace of him was found, and it was a general belief that he committed suicide, as a human skeleton was found years after in an old well nearby. This is the legend that gave the ghastly name to the bridge. The blood which flowed from the body of Jack Billings, the boat driver, marked the bridge, and for 40 years, the blood stains defied the rain and weather. Four years ago, a new bridge was built, the old one becoming property of relic hunters, nearly every one for miles around securing a piece of blood-stained timber as a memento of one of the most horrible crimes ever committed. This most horrible crime would be investigated some 40 years later by reporter Tex DeWeese of the Lima News. His August 1935 article details his efforts to understand the bridge's appeal from those living far and wide from the location. After hearing the story, intrigued onlookers just had to get a look at the place for themselves. Just like them, DeWeese went to the spot as well. The original bridge had been replaced, 
It was iron-framed and wooden-floored. Nothing was left of the original blood-soaked planks. Forty years of rain and weather couldn't cleanse the boards of Jack's blood. That's how the bridge got the name. The original remnants had been looted by locals who wanted a souvenir of the legendary structure, picking it clean and relieving the engineers of any disposal duties. Like any good reporter, Deweese put his feet to the ground and sought out interviews with the people who knew it best, the locals. He had the good fortune to connect with the Stoner family, who lived directly across the road from the spot. Mrs. Stoner regaled him with family tales of the murder and its lasting impact. Her grandfather, Gideon Sheiks, had worked on the canal for many years while it operated. He'd known the story well and had been alive at the time it happened. And in his old age, he repeated the tale for all who would listen. It all happened in 1854. He was sure of it. Another bit of evidence revealed by Deweese's investigation was the discovery of the nearby well. It's believed that the remains of the murderous Bill Jones were later proclaimed to have been found there. Harold Folk, an owner of a St. Mary's milling company, owned a farm which ran adjacent to the bridge. One day, he'd made the gruesome discovery of the skeleton at the bottom of his well. It matched Bill Jones's imposing height and frame. Bill had gone missing in the months following the slayings. All assumed it was indeed him. Whether he'd taken his own life under the weight of regret for the act, or whether some vengeful loved one had issued the justice themselves. Now over time, most folk tales evolve and grow. They take on new subplots and are retold from more current perspectives. This is where the legend of the Bloody Bridge stands out. The story, as I've read to you from historical newspaper articles reprinted year after year, remains the same legend as told today. The characters, their motives, and the tragic outcome all stays the same. So much so, in fact, that in 1976, the Allglaze County Historical Society memorialized a condensed version of the story and placed it on a plaque at the location. This plaque still stands in a small parking lot adjacent to the bridge. This tribute to this enduring story was not its first monument, however. The first monument was a large stone on which the story was engraved. While reaching out to locals, I had the great fortune to connect with someone who had seen the stone before it was removed and replaced by the plaque. Miss Alyssa Hatfield is a resident of St. Mary's. A true native, she has lived in the area all her life and has had unexplained experiences at the bridge. She was gracious enough to share those experiences here with us today. She starts by recalling a childhood memory of an impromptu visit with her family. Come, hear her story. I don't remember where we were coming back from, but my mom had taken a video camera because I think we went out for a family day or something and we were just coming back through that area. 
And when we had got out, my mom, you know, just recorded it because she's making memories and everything of us being young and her taking us to the bridge. So she made a video of us there. I could have sworn she had a picture of it. Like, 100%, I know she had a picture of it, but I think she may have just taken the picture from her camera and then had printed it out and developed it separately, which I did call her and ask if she could find the video, but unfortunately, because it's been so long, it's just kind of been stashed somewhere that she doesn't know where anymore. Yeah, I can understand that. About what year would you guess this was? Oh, okay. Um, I would say early 2000s. Okay. Yeah, early 2000s. So we're talking about going on 20 years. That video is probably who knows where. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you describe uh, the visual? So um, when we had watched the video, my mom had originally watched it first and everything. And we were at school when she had watched it. So when we came home, she was like, girl, come here. You want to see something? So she called us over and she showed us the video. And obviously it was just a video of us getting out of the car, going up and reading the stone and then looking around. Well, as my mom was moving the camera around, you know, just getting the scenery of it, she had turned back towards the rock. And when she had turned back towards the rock, um, there was an imprint of a face pushing out of the rock. And I mean, I'm not saying like you could, people would go, oh, well, maybe you thought it was a face. No, there were defining features you could see the bridge of the nose you could see eyes like you could see the eye sockets you could see a mouth pushing out open you could see the like the lining of the jawline and the chin like it was a very prominent face like there was no mistaking mm. yeah so it wasn't like there's just these markings on the rock and you kind of put your your mind puts it together i mean what you saw was very distinct um, yeah, it was it was super distinctive because it, we watched the whole video and when my mom first goes over the rock and records it, there was nothing there. It was just the flat, solid rock with the engravings. And then as she panned back over it, we seen the face pushing out. Oh, well, that's kind of a, a whole other level there, right? So there's an initial picture of it looking normal and then coming back is where you see the face. Yeah. Oh, man. And it was coming, like protruding out of the rock yeah it looked like like the little you remember the little toys that you could put people like kids would put their hands and it would have the imprint of your hand in it mm -hmm. it was kind of like that it looked like somebody was screaming and then pushing their face against the surface trying to get out wow screaming that would be a bit intense to see that expression yeah, because, like, it was open mouth. Like, the mouth was wide open. It wasn't, like, a closed mouth, just somebody pushing their face through. It was wide open mouth and then the rest of the defining features. And did it look like a male or female? Or were you like um, it, was, it was male. Just by, like, the structure from what I can remember, it definitely looked like a male head just because the nose itself was more... Like, the bridge of it was a little bigger and wider than a woman's would be. And then the mouth itself wasn't, like, big-lipped or anything. It was just kind of, like, thin-lipped. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something you were seeing physically when you were there. It was only in reviewing the video afterward. Is that right? Yeah. We never seen anything on it. Like, we had come up and everything. We were looking at the rock, touching it, reading the words, and then looking around the bridge because I think when my mom had caught it on camera, me and my sister were on the bridge looking over the bridge into the water. Huh. And that's, um, 
You know, it's it's similar to uh, what you're describing there. It's similar to the claims that I've read about in terms of ghost sightings there. It usually has to do with, um, you know, looking over the water. Is that when the viewer is looking over the water is when the ghost appears. Um, so, I mean, there's that commonality, I guess. Um, um, yeah, I know there's, I know I've heard people from when I went to school because, you know, kids being kids and they get their license and they've heard about the bridge, like, oh, we're going to go there at night because nothing's going to happen. Um, I have heard multiple stories from people going to the bridge at night and looking over the bridge and then hear somebody come running at them. And when they turn, they see the figure of a man with an ax coming towards them and then he disappears before he reaches. And while they're turned away from the bridge, they will hear a loud splash in the water like somebody had fallen in. So those specific sequence of events, you've heard that from uh, other people you know in the area? I, yeah, I've heard that from other people that I went to school with who had gone and done it. And then when we went to the bridge the third time, I was talking about it. And uh, my boyfriend's nephew um, was actually saying, yeah, I've heard about that. And he's younger than me. Okay. So, you know, there's more accounts and people um, after you have had some unexpected, unexplained experiences. But but it all seems to relate to this legend, especially a guy with an axe and, you know, running and that kind of thing. Yeah, it all relates to the story itself. Right. Okay. Do you have any guesses as to who, uh, who or what you think the face might have represented or what it was? Um, I think with how brutal the murder of... I think his name was Jack was yeah, right. that could have easily been him lingering in that area just because of how violently he died. Right. And he could have just been hanging out in that area and then happened to be attached to that stone because it's in the area. And we just caught it by accident of him trying to do something or communicate in some way, shape or form. I mean, it's, it's not hard to imagine, you know, if we believe in ghosts, and, you know, here's a rock that tells the story of his brutal murder, uh, you know, why he would be attached to something. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's letting everybody know, hey, this is how Jack Billing died. And when people read it and say his name, it could easily just pull forth either his spirit or something along the lines of what remains of his spirit. Yeah. What may remain of Jack Billings' spirit, or perhaps any number of otherworldly beings, has been the topic of discussion for more than a century. It's a story that's been told at slumber parties. It's been divulged over barroom tables. Locals have owned the tale as their own, a marker of the sordid lives once lived by their ancestors. This story holds so much clout that it's been written in stone for all to come learn. Not only do all Glaze County residents claim the story as their own, they want passers-by to come discover it for themselves. This unique piece of drama from a time gone by has captured the imagination of so many, not the least of which are local artists. Two such people, a retired high school band director named Mr. Warren Bowery and his colleague, an elementary school teacher by the name of Mrs. Celeste Geise, 
were so inspired by the ghostly reputation of the Bloody Bridge that they wrote and produced a high school musical on the subject. It was first performed at Ottaville High School in 1994. Ottaville is a tiny hamlet 25 miles north of the Bloody Bridge. It, too, was once a stop on the Miami Erie Canal, Lock 16, as it was known back then. As a tribute to the enduring legacy of this folktale, these two educators created their first ever musical on the subject. They were both surprised and thrilled at the reception it received. People from all around, especially those living up and down the historical canal's many miles, came to see the show. There is indeed a hunger for seeing this tale brought to life. If the spirits of those long dead do indeed remain at the spot, perhaps they'd take solace in knowing they're not forgotten. But you don't have to take my word for it. For today's second interview, I've been so lucky to connect with Warren Bowery, the musical's composer. You'll hear him start by sharing how they decided on writing the musical in the first place. Celeste was, uh, it was near the end of her teaching career, and she approached me in the teacher's lounge one day and said, hey, I'm writing a script for a musical. Would you be interested in writing the music? And I'm like, yeah, what, what's it about? And then she told me the story of the Bloody Bridge, because I had never heard that. You know, I'm not from around here originally. And, you know, if you drive by, and I didn't go down 66 much, but you go down State Route 66, and there's just a marker there, a little parking area. And, you know, unless you know what it is, you wouldn't even think to stop. But she told me the story. She said that her husband, when they were dating back in the late 50s, or early 60s, I guess, told her the story. And they went down there and, you know, just kind of creep her out, I guess, is what he was doing, but she became fascinated with it. And then when that uh, booklet came out from the Canal Commission, she got the bug to write a musical about it. And she asked me if I would do it. And I thought, well, sure. And I thought, well, if she ever does this, you know. And then within about uh, no, two or three weeks, she said, here's a script. Had lyrics and everything. She said, you can start writing the music. I'm like, okay. So it was cranking out the music. It was trying to, I was trying to get a song done about every three to four days, you know, because I only worked on it after school and in the evenings and stuff. And it took a lot of time and a lot of fixing things up, but uh, it was a lot of fun. But she, you know, like I said, had a personal connection to her, to her husband when they were dating. And to me, I just thought it was a cool story. So you um, happily or, um, I don't know, unhappily got kind of roped into it, but it sounds like you yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And plus, I got to direct the show, you know, I was, going to do that i knew that right off the bat but and it was uh kind of nice having the the author right there the playwright <laughs> on standby for sure <laughs> if you want to change anything you know you could do that and uh-huh it was love, it was great i love how it comes up just organically um out of her own experience uh and then it just you know it's through some synergy or, or what have you you, you both yes. connect made it yeah. happen and it took on a life of its own. It really did. The uh-huh. kids had a great time with it. I mean, we had no problem getting, having people donate costumes for us to use from uh, people that are, I don't know what the group was, but they were in Delphus. They were kind of like uh, reenactors for parades and things. So we got a lot of clothing from them. 
we didn't have a whole lot of expense in it, obviously, because we wrote the story, so we didn't have any royalties to pay or scripts to buy. Or yeah, so a lot of advantages that way, even though there was more work on the front end. Um, sure, sure. So um, you've been to the location yourself? I've been down there a few times, but mm-hmm. every time we were down there, it was in the daytime. I've never gone down there at night. I I don't know. I don't go looking for trouble. <laughs> they say I've had a few experiences myself over the years, and it's like so I, I don't go looking for because I didn't feel comfortable with anything I've ever had any dealings with. So, uh-huh. but uh, you know, just going down there, uh, you know, obviously it's not the original bridge. But, uh, it, you know, a lot of people still say they go down there and they see things. And nobody that I know personally has ever said they've seen anything or experienced anything down there. But it's still kind of neat to see. I guess if you went down there on a full moon, it would be kind of have a high creep factor. Yeah, right. So I, I get the sense that you um, are open-minded to possible unexplained phenomenon. Uh, yeah, that- you don't have any interest in seeking it out purposely when you're that, on the That's correct. I yeah, like I said, I've had a few experiences. <laughs> that's a story uh-huh. in itself. But yes, I, I don't really go looking for things like that. I like to watch uh, some of those ghost hunting shows on TV, but you couldn't pay me to go to a ghost hunting <laughs> thing. I, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah, you'll watch it from the comfort of your home. That's correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's good that uh, people are open-minded and don't assume that you know all everything about how the world works and that there could be some things that we still just don't quite understand fully. Um, yeah, so I, I think we've covered most of the questions that I had for you. Were there any stones I left unturned, anything else? But one of the questions you had on there was about the mm-hmm. public response. Yes, yes. For the musical. It was amazing. We were interviewed on Lima TV. All the newspapers ran stories about it. I mean, some pretty in-depth stories. Uh, Mike Lackey for the Lima News wrote a, a like a feature story on it. That was kind of neat. And all that publicity really renewed interest in the Bloody Bridge and the history and the story. And it brought us a lot of audience that came from St. Mary's and Spencerville areas in particular. You know, usually we had oh, about 200 seats on the floor in the old gym, and then we would open all oh, three or four, five rows of the bleachers where they could sit, and then the spotlight would be behind it. We had to keep moving the spotlight higher and higher because we were getting so many people in for those two shows. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of it was word of mouth, but we had people from Lima, Defiance area, like I said, all the way Spencerville and south, and you know, that holds at uh, St. Mary's area. I mean, it was a, it was very well received. The one thing that kind of surprised both Celeste and me was at near the end of the bridge, you know, of course, the one character gets his head cut off and it rolls across the bridge and people laughed <laughs> but like, when the head rolled across the bridge. I thought, oh, maybe because it kind of sounded like a bowling ball going across. It was made of plaster that's rolling across a wooden bridge deck. So, <laughs> I hope that's it. Maybe, or maybe it was nervous laughter, but people yeah. got it. They got a kick out of that. <laughs> I thought, right. well, ways we could have made a little scarier is to have, you know, the the character come back with a bloody axe and go running off or something. Yeah, that, that might have been better than the head roll, but it was still <laughs> it, kind of, it was memorable. <laughs> yeah, 
you know, it is what it is. And um, yeah, interesting. You're mentioning the wide appeal that it had. I think. Oh boy. Stories. It, there's it. a real appetite, especially for local folklore. Um, and I find that whenever I do one of these episodes, I, you know, wherever the location is, I reach out for local people to really get from their mouth yeah. what the story is. And they're, right. they're just so eager to tell me. Um, I don't have to like pry anybody. <laughs> oh, no. no. Yeah. Um, it's just so much a part of, I guess, kind of human experience that we want to share these unusual things with others. Our eagerness to share a story such as this is quite simply how folklore is made. There's a kind of magical quality, a discerning difference between an ordinary story and one that gets imbued with generations of lore. Like a living thing, a folktale drives roots deep into the bedrock of a region. It reflects something of our past, of the people we once were. It reflects something of our present, of the values we celebrate and the lessons we hold up. And sometimes, it echoes what we might yet become, when some number of generations hence, others will tell tales of what it meant to live during our days. Today, you can find sections of the Miami Erie Canal which yet remain. In fact, two locations offer replicas of 19th century canal boats, which can be ridden as a tourist attraction. This includes one operating section in Piqua. The other, in Grand Rapids, offers the only surviving and functional lock in all of Ohio. Lucky riders aboard the Volunteer get to experience the lock in action as part of the price of admission. Other areas of the canal vary widely in their state of disrepair. Remnants of long dormant locks can be found scattered along the route. Certain sections, like what remains between St. Mary's and Delphus, parallel to State Route 66, are yet navigable by canoe or kayak. It's this section where the banks have been most thoroughly preserved. The canal remains filled with water, the same as it once looked shortly after it was constructed. It's for this reason that this section of the canal was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1964. So whether or not you believe in the ghostly spirits said to inhabit the Bloody Bridge itself, if you go there today, you can be sure to see the canal in the same way these long-dead Ohioans once saw it with their own eyes. You'll just have to imagine the teams of mules along the towpaths, pulling wooden boats weighed down with cargo. There's something uniquely satisfying about spotting fragments of this once bustling thoroughfare of commerce and travel. While much of the canal today is clogged with rotting trees or fully drained from compromised banks, there's something comforting in spotting places where parts are recognizable. It's a kind of monument to the heroic efforts of its construction. Countless men died while building it and are rumored to have been buried in its banks. As morbid as that sounds, 
It reflects the cost we were willing to pay just to be more connected with one another. In those years before the railroad shortened distances between us, going somewhere was long, arduous, and usually something we had to do on our own. The canal became the first kind of mass transit, a way to travel with others, to go see other people and places once out of our reach. The canal offered a hope, not just for increased commerce, but for connecting with other Ohioans over wide expanses. And in the end, connection is what we're all seeking. I'm sure many rural Ohioans living in small villages along the canal's route dreamed of walking the streets of a lively city like Toledo or Cincinnati. The canal put such dreams in closer reach for them. Connection is also what's sought by the enduring characters of the Bloody Bridge legend. Just like the rest of us, they seek love, acceptance, and belonging. And the thought of losing love, in Bill Jones's mind, led to a jealous, murderous rage. The true lesson of the story, I believe, is that love can't be won, only given. It can't be demanded, only received. It's a common theory that ghosts are the ephemeral souls of those lost, those searching for connections never made in life. Maybe the reason the legend of the Bloody Bridge sticks with us is the way it encapsulates that most elemental of fears, that of rejection, dismissal, and love lost just as we've met our beloved. May you find love and keep love, and may you give love when it's hardest, especially when it's hardest. That's a lesson I think most wandering spirits could agree on. This concludes today's episode on the Bloody Bridge. I hope you've liked it. If so, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.